We are continuing to look at, um, at the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we are in Luke 13, and today we will be uh, looking over the passage, verses 22 through 35. So I invite you to hear these words. Luke writes this, Jesus went through one town and village after another, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. Once the owner of the house has got up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then in reply, he will say to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I do not know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrown out. Then people will come from east and west, from north and south, and take their places at the banquet in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have, have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we gather around together after hearing the ways in which you are at work, and we give you great praise for that. But we also pray this morning that you would open up our hearts once again to you. As vulnerable as it may feel, that we would be open to what you might have to say to us this morning. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Jesus went through one town and village after another, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. For the first time in a little while, at least, Luke explicitly reminds us that Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem, right? We've been talking about this, and Keith Nichols says it's important for us to continually remember that basically from around chapters 9 through 19, that Jesus is marching toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, 
toward his death. And I think Luke wants us to continue to remember that because it helps us to understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying, why he's acting as he's acting in this time. He knows what is coming in the future, and so it is changing how he is ministering in the present. I, I've shared this before, so I won't go into great detail, but just about how when Megan and I had our very first date, um, how we were uh, really kind of obnoxiously vulnerable and honest with one another. And, and, and we didn't really have time. We, we, we weren't really kind of making stuff up. We were just kind of saying, this is really who we are. This is all of our flaws. And the reason I did it was because I was 30, almost 31. I could see the shadow of the graveyard coming. And I knew that I couldn't waste time, right, uh, on this kind of dating some, for someone for a couple of years. I needed to know soon. Is this a possible possibility or, or no? And so, so then I just kind of ripped off any kind of facade and just said, let me be as honest as I can possibly be. You see, I think that Jesus, as we've been discovering over these last several chapters, he is kind of hitting on, in what is his most prophetic Mode. We've said a lot, and we'll say it a lot today, how Jesus and Jeremiah oftentimes parallel each other. You see, prophets have no time for kind of hiding things, no time for facades. They are truth tellers, even when it makes us uncomfortable or vulnerable. And it's not because they don't like us. It's because they love us so deeply. So there is Jesus, and he's going toward Jerusalem when someone asks the question, how many people are going to be able to be saved, right? Well, only a few really enter the kingdom of God. I like what uh, Fred Craddock says, which is that really this is the question that most of us have readers have, as readers have at this point. After having kind of been kind of punched left and right over the last few chapters with Jesus just kind of really challenging us, it's easy to begin to wonder, well, what about me and what's going to happen? Am I ever going to be saved? Is it possible? But Jesus, as commentators point out so well, once again, he does not answer this question. Jesus does not waste time with the question that he thinks is not one that we should focus on. And so instead, he steers that man, he steers us towards the questions that we should actually be asking. So he says, the door is narrow. You should strive to enter it. Those are, there are those who will knock on the door and they will say, what? We ate with you. We drank with you. You taught on our streets. But he will say, I do not know where you have come Jesus, in other words, is saying you are wasting your time if you're worried about who's in and who's out and what's going to happen and how many people are going to be saved. He said this is not the right thing to be worried about. You're too concerned with, with who else is going to be there. He said this is what you should actually be concerned about. How are you living and are you genuinely following me? I want to say this again because he gives us this image so that it will awaken us. How are you living right now and are you genuinely following Jesus? How are you living right now and are you genuinely following Jesus? 
This is the question to which Jesus is saying you must be willing to ask yourself. It is so easy for us to be distracted by all the noise about how other people are living and whether or not they or the culture is following God. All these things are great diversions. But what Jesus wants to know is this. How are you living? Are you following Jesus? Let's remember Jeremiah for a moment. I said this several weeks ago that during Jeremiah's time there in Judah, there was a brief revival. And so people had kind of turned away during the time of King Josiah uh, from, from, from all the idols that they were worshiping. And, and they were really, it seemed, they were kind of beginning to follow God. And this was all good. But as Jeremiah continued to look more closely, what he realized is that actually much was still going on that had been going on before, but it was going on under the cloak of darkness. What he began to discover is that the revival was actually not that deep. It was not as deep as the people's hearts. And so Jeremiah continued to speak about this. He continued to tell the truth. And there were some religious leaders who did not like that. The main religious leader was a guy by the name of Peshua. And Peshua, it seems, was speaking more words of peace, saying, oh, no, everything is okay. You guys are doing great. And he was speaking more, it seems, a word of, like, you know, of joy. And, and he did not like it that Jeremiah was forcing them to, to kind of think through things a little bit more, that Jeremiah kept asking them the question very directly, how are you living and what are you following God? And so Peshua put Jeremiah in the stocks. It's a good way to shut somebody up. And so he put him in these stocks. He said, okay, I'm going to make sure that you can't say anything else anymore. Because we cannot have this kind of, this religion that you are trying to talk about here, this faith, uh, Jeremiah, where it's causing us almost to question ourselves. Eugene Peterson, when he thinks about this particular scene in the life of Jeremiah, he equates it with the modern day church And he asked this question, or he says this. He says, some people come to church looking for a way to make life better, to feel good about themselves, to see things in a better light. They arrange a ritual and hire a preacher to make that happen for them. Other people come to church because they want God to save and rule them. They accept the fact that there are temptations and sufferings and sacrifices involved in leaving a way of life in which they are in control and plunging into an uncertain existence in which God is in control. One group of people see religion as a way to successful, happy living. Nothing that interferes with the success or interrupts the happiness will be tolerated. The other group sees religion as a way in which hurt, flawed, and damaged persons become whole in relation to God. Anything will be accepted. Mockery, pain, renunciation, self-denial in order to deepen and extend that reality. One way is the way of enhancing what I want. and The other way is a commitment of myself to become what God wants. It's interesting that when Jesus tells this little story, almost a parable about the people in the narrow door, 
He says that they were sitting there and they were saying, whoa, 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 we ate with you. We drank with you. We, uh, you taught in our streets. In other words, these were people who actually knew Jesus. But what we begin to see, of course, is this reality that even though they were around Jesus, they had not actually taken him seriously enough to change their Lives. It's the difference, it seems to me, between observing Jesus and participating in Jesus. You see, it's important, please hear me, we're all in different steps along this faith journey, and it is important for us to learn about Jesus. It's important for us to learn about the cost. It's important for us to see and understand the church a little bit more. But eventually, the time has to come when you are willing to actually begin to walk and to sacrifice and to feel the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. There was a big difference between just observing and actually participating. And Jesus loves us too much to simply allow us to just keep walking or keep acting like we know who he is without actually following him. Because you see, what Jesus knows is that deception is always on the prowl. I use that word with intentionality, that word prowl, because I think it connects with what we see happening next. The Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, you got to get out of here. Herod is coming for you. He wants to kill you. Now, there's lots of debate about these Pharisees. Are, these Pharise- are they genuine? Right? And it's split, as far as I can tell, about 50-50 with scholars. There are those who say, oh, you know what? These Pharisees, they're always bad. There's no way that they're actually meaning this. What they want, they just want Jesus to get out of his, their hair. And they think, hey, you should run, he'll run, and then they don't have to deal with Jesus anymore, right? That would be a great gift for them. Others would say, oh, man, these Pharisees, you know what? Every once in a while, there are some good ones amongst the bunch, so maybe they're genuinely trying to help him. We don't know, but here is what we know for sure, is that Jesus was very confident and very clear about what he thought about this uh, suggestion that he runs. What does he, he run? What does he say? Go and tell that fox for me. Listen. I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow and on the third day finish my work. Don't you love that? Tell that fox. Here's what I love about that. Jesus renames Herod to say this is who Herod actually is. He's wily and he's cunning. This he personifies Herod. He renames him so that we see who he actually is. Here's what's great about Jeremiah. Let's go back here. Jer- uh, Peshua, uh, he goes and he releases, he decides he's gonna release Jeremiah from the stocks and what would you have done after that, right? After he's released, would you have, you know, would you have just said, oh, thank you? Would you, have, would you have said, okay, well, maybe I'll tone down? Would you have run, you know, and gotten some distance? I could see myself doing this, right? I'm like, okay, I think I'm far enough away. And then started continuing to speak against Peshua. Uh, no, here's what Jeremiah does. As soon as he's out of the stocks, he says, Peshua, your name is no longer. From now on, your name is danger everywhere. You are danger everywhere because you are a danger to yourself and you are a danger to your family. You are a danger to everyone. 
And what he begins to do is say, no, 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 you are now, he's lifting him up. This is what prophets do and say, no, 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 you're not Bashua. You are danger everywhere. He renames him for who he actually is. Now, see, I think this is important because I think that there is something to personifying what is actually evil. Now, I want to be careful here I say this hesitantly because there are many churches I know of, I've been a part of some of them, we've talked about this, who personify evil so much that it's as if evil is absolutely everywhere. And it is kind of an exhausting life to be afraid of everything and to think that everything is evil and to call everything evil. It is exhausting and it's not true. What happens when you are a part of a group like that is that you begin to divide. You begin to put up a massive barrier between yourself and others. And I don't think Jesus ever called us to do that. At the exact same time, here's my concern. We've gone from kind of, you know, that, if you will, to making what is evil or what can be evil incredibly passive. As if the only way that it will influence our life is if we have genuinely just invited it in. But you see, the foxes amongst us, they may seem furry and soft. But ultimately, at some point, they will bite us. I like what Joe Evans says. He says that Herod, a.k.a. the fox, will eat you, it will take everything, and it will leave you empty. I think I tried to get at this um, in some ways, a little softer way. A few weeks ago, I was talking about following Jesus and the relationship that we have with God and that we can't just kind of take that willy-nilly. We can't just kind of take that lightly, that commitment. And I said, it's a bit like a marriage, right? You can't just, you know, make those vows and then you just kind of, you know, sometimes you abide by them, sometimes you don't. It's not that big of a deal. None of, few of us hopefully would do that with our marriages and yet we oftentimes do it with God. And so I, I kept using this line that since then my girls have been making fun of me about. They've reached the age where they love making fun of my sermons. And uh, the, what I began to say is it's not cute, it's not funny, it's not no big deal. But I want to say it even sharper today, which is that we have to pay attention because there, are, there is real evil that is around us that is not passive but is remarkably active. And I think at times we actually need to get mad. Well, the, the example I gave a few weeks ago, I think, was, was commercials and advertisements. And I know, like, oh, these Jerry, it's just a commercial. What's the big deal? You need to know that they are not just selling a product. They are selling you a different identity. They are selling you a different purpose. They are selling you a significance. That is not why Jesus said you are significant. You see, I've reached the age now where my daughters see these commercials that say this is what a woman is supposed to be like. If you buy this, if you have this, if you look like that, then you will really have purpose and meaning. And you're doggone right that that ticks me off. And if we are not paying attention to that, then we are letting the fox come into the hen house. 
And it isn't that we have to mute it every time. It isn't that we, oh, I just got to make sure I never see commercials, never look up at billboards. You can't live like that. But you need to call a fox a fox. And we need to be able to be honest about what it is that they are selling. And those times when they are countering who Jesus says that they are, who we are, and the mission of Jesus, then we need to call the fox the fox. Or what about my other favorite soapbox, of course, smartphones and social media. We need to be mindful of this. I'm afraid that there are far too many of us who have said, well, it's just the way the world works. Let's just scroll away. And certainly I have a smartphone. I even get on social media every once in a while. But we need to pay attention to the way that it is shaping our souls if we just mindlessly let that fox enter into our homes and our lives because they are promising you, they are telling you this is how you keep up with everybody else. This is how great everyone else's life is. I love this week. I saw this, I don't know, whatever. Britney Spears. And she was talking about this ensuing divorce that she has and she goes, you know, I know it may surprise you in some ways. I think she said this tongue in cheek, but what it looks life looks like on Instagram isn't real life. The problem is, is that we say that and yet it still creeps into our lives. And we are allowing far too often the fox into our hen house. And we are not calling it what it is. Or what about the subject that I haven't gotten in trouble in a couple of years probably about, maybe at least a year and a half, so I'll bring it up, which is patriotism. Last week or a week and a half ago or so, we were at a rodeo in Missouri at the state fair. It was really quite fun. My girls had never been to a rodeo before and lots of cool things. But there was some weird stuff when it came to the prayer that they did, and, and which was kind of strange. And, and there was this strange connection and weaving between rodeos and God and America. In fact, it was so strange that as uh, as we were leaving, as we were driving away, one of my girls said to me, do you think, I think in all seriousness, that they realized that Jesus was not American? Now, I'm very proud of her for having felt how weird this felt to her. Now, let me hear you, because I'm going to say this very clearly. It is, it is a lazy defensiveness to say, oh, that means that Jerry just thinks we shouldn't be proud to be Americans. That is not what I'm saying. Do not let us off the hook by saying that. But when we begin to interweave Christ and America so much that it becomes a weird sort of nationalism, let me be very clear. We have allowed the fox into the hen house. It begins to distort how we see the world for which God has died, Christ has died, and it begins to distort how we see others who come from other places. It begins to distort our understanding of the kingdom of God. Anything, no matter how wonderful it may be, our country, our identity, our love of sports, our church, our relationships, our work, our money, our egos, anything can become a fox if we begin to worship it in any way.
Now I know. Or those of you who say, oh, Jerry, it's just a phone. It's just a commercial. And you might be right. But I do like to go back to Jeremiah, this fact that apparently after he called Peshua Mr. Danger everywhere, that they began to then mock Jeremiah. Whenever he went anywhere, they would say, it seems, oh, there's Mr. Danger everywhere. And I'm guessing they continued that all the way until the fox called Babylon came knocking on their doors. So the question that we must ask is whether or not we have grown so comfortable with the fox in our life that we have failed to see the sharpness of its teeth. Now, it is important once again for us to understand why Jesus says this so clearly and emphatically. It's not because Jesus is Mr. Negativity or because Jeremiah was Mr. Killjoy. It is actually because they love us far too much to allow us to simply live our lives in a shallow way where the fox continues to eat and we are completely unmindful. How do we see this love? I think we see this love in their grief. I think it's Wendell Berry who makes this great connection between the depth of grief and the depth of our love. Jeremiah in chapter 8, when he looks out over his people, he says, my grief is beyond healing, my heart is broken. And then in the following chapter, he says, oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. What he seems to be saying there is, I wish my tear ducts could become like rivers because only then could they truly express the grief I have for my people. When Jesus looks over Jerusalem, what does he say? He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. As Dale Bruner says, whenever you see that redundancy, it is a sign of intimate love. When Jesus looks at Martha, oh, Martha, Martha. When God calls Saul, oh, Saul, Saul, when the angel approaches Abraham, 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 it is this remarkable sense of intimacy. But then Jesus gives us this uniquely feminine image. And I think it's incredibly powerful. He says, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. David Jacobson says that this is an image that is both fierce and vulnerable. David Lowe says, you know, it's a little bit like a parent and then he begins to describe what it was like when he first became a parent. He says this. He says, to be a parent, as I discovered to my surprise, the very moment our eldest child was born, is to be held hostage to fate and captive to destiny. There is no way you can protect your children 
This is important for all of us just to hear. From all the threats this life presents, nor should you. And that not only leaves parents profoundly vulnerable, but promises a level of suffering that you simply would not endure if you had not bound yourself so fully to your child. You see, when God created us and was bound to us, as strange as it may sound, he made himself incredibly vulnerable. Vulnerable to the suffering as we see in the life of Jesus. And what's important to understand is that Jesus speaks so fearlessly because he loves us so unabashedly. The only way, the only reason that Jesus speaks and with such emphasis and in such a strong way is because of how deep his love is. It is fierce and it is vulnerable. And quite frankly, a God who would not seek after us with this kind of ferocity would be a much lesser God. I want to close out this morning with this description of this hen that uh, Barbara Brown Taylor gives that I think is really helpful. In fact, if you want, I would even invite you to just close your eyes and to hear this description. She says this. What Jesus will be is a mother hen who stands between the chicks and those who mean to do them harm. She has no fangs, no claws, no rippling muscles. All she has is her willingness to shield her babies with her own body. If the fox wants them, he will have to kill her first, which he does, as it turns out. The fox slides up on her one night in the yard while all the babies are asleep. And when her cry awakens them, they scatter. She dies the next day where both foxes and chickens can see her wings spread, breast exposed without a single chick beneath her feathers it breaks her heart but it does not change a thing if you mean what you say then this is how you stand sisters and brothers this is the kind of love that Jesus has for us. It is fierce and it is vulnerable. And what he doggedly is determined to not allow us to do is to be satisfied with any kind of love that the fox might promise. Because that love will ultimately devour us. As he marches towards Jerusalem, once again, he seems to leave us with this very simple question. Will we choose the deep, ferocious love of Jesus? Or will we keep chasing after foxes? 
who will eventually eat us, take everything and leave us empty. Let us pray. God, your love is far too fierce to allow us to not see the foxes that are all around us and that are seeking to devour us. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to your love to how vulnerable you made yourself for us. And that you would open us up, our eyes as well, to those places where we are playing with foxes and are not calling them what they are. In so doing, Lord, might we begin to live deeper lives. are not content with chasing after one dream, chasing after another image, chasing after yet one more purpose, one more re-identification, but instead is chasing after you, striving for the door that is narrow and yet that is open right now for us. In your name we pray, amen.